0: Welcome you today to the last week of our God at the Movie series. Beam me up, Scotty. If you can do this, raise your hand real high. Several of you can. Hey, we're going to talk today about this incredible movie called Into the Darkness. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at key themes from big blockbusters of the summer and then looking to apply those themes to our personal lives, along with taking some very important passages from the Bible that speak to the same idea or themes or principles. And today, We're going to extract one important component of this movie, Into the Darkness, and you even saw this in the video, and it centers around Captain Kirk and a lot of his other comrades with the idea of leadership or influence, and ultimately the power of our decisions and how our decisions influence the people around us. And at the beginning of the movie, Captain Kirk leads his troops into battle, makes some very foolish decisions that could have cost the lives of everybody underneath his leadership, And then throughout the movie, we see both him and the other characters wrestle through the authority or leadership that's been given to them and make choices. And here's the choice. The question is, will they use the authority that has been given to them for the good of others, or will they use that leadership or that authority for their own good? And the same question is true for you and I today. And oftentimes the challenge for many of us is that we don't see ourselves as leaders. You know, most of us will never be the president of the United States, newsflash. Uh, very few of us, although some of us will ever be CEOs or in charge of large organizations or corporations, but all of us have influence and leadership in the lives of other people around us. And I might venture to say that this is one of the most influential places in all of the world. In fact, what happens in the 50, 60 square miles around us changes the entire planet. And so every one of us has a level of authority and leadership over the lives of people around us. We've been given influence by God. And the question is, what will we do with the measure of influence that has been given to us? Will we use that influence for our good, selfishly, or for the good of others? That's what we're going to talk about today. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Old Testament. It's all the way back, about one-third of the way through the Bible, in a book called Chronicles. And we're going to look at a story of a guy named David, who is the second king of the nation of Israel. And we're going to zero in... On David as he misuses his leadership and authority that God has given to him now we have to understand the context of what's happening in this particular story King David is the second king of the nation of Israel and right before King David shows up onto the scene there's another guy by the name of King Saul now King Saul abuses his authority And actually will lose his leadership or his kingship because of his choices to abuse authority and use it for his own good. And now God takes the kingdom and he gives it to this guy named David. And David, the scripture says, he is a man after God's own heart. At the core of his being and at the core of his leadership is this passion for God. And as a result of his passion for God, God starts to bless him. In fact, his army starts routing all of their enemies. I mean, they are just wiping people out. And in the passages leading up to this particular passage from the Bible that we're going to look at, we see David gain momentum with his leadership and especially when it comes to his soldiers. I mean, they are just destroying everybody who had always been destroying the Israelites. They wipe out a group of people called the Philistines. And then there's this one story right before the story we're looking at today where David routs his enemies and he gets a 75 pound gold crown and puts it on his hand, head. And the scripture says that it's the springtime, it's the time when all of the other kings go out to war, and David decides to stay at home. He's starting to get a little bit of a cush lifestyle. He's starting to think like, he's the man, I've got this 75 pound gold crown on my head, nobody can stop me, I can destroy all of my enemies, I'm in charge, I'm the man, I'm the king. And we watch this interaction between David and one of his key confidants and David and God and David of a, with a prophet from the Lord where David starts to get a little bit too good for his own good and for the good of the people. And watch what happens in First Chronicles chapter 21. The passage says in verse number one, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now it's interesting, the other passage in Samuel that talks about this says that God rose up or put David in this position to take a census as well. And it's kind of interesting because it seems like, well, one says God does it, one says Satan does it, which one is true? The answer is they're both true. And the things that the enemy, Satan wants to use to destroy us, God wants to use to develop us. And now in this particular passage, we see the enemy, Satan's intent, the real enemy, to destroy Israel and to destroy David. And the scripture says he rose him up to take a census. Now, a census is not inherently bad. We did a census in 2010 in the United States and that census helps us gather important information. It's not bad for a king to know what's going on in his nation. But in this particular instance, it's the motivation behind the census that's the problem. It's that David has been defeating all of his enemies and his desire is to count his troops out of pride and arrogance. His motivation is not pure. It's not to bless the people under his leadership. It's so that he can know how powerful and how strong he's become. So Satan rose, rises up against him to take a census of the land. Verse number two, it says, so David said to Joab, go and count the commanders of the troops. Count the Israelites from Besheba to Dan, which is north to south. It's the entire nation. And then report back to me so that I might know how many there are. Now guys, this, this is not like just hopping online and looking at Facebook and seeing how many followers you have. It's not like looking at Twitter, you know, playing with your Twitter and seeing how many people follow you. I mean, this is like, this is counting every single, every single soldier in the entire nation. They don't have vehicles. I mean, they're going to have to walk by foot or hop on horses and count every single soldier in the entire nation. This is a tall order that David is telling Joab. And now David, he's at this place where he's just flippantly making decisions, He's just like, go count the guys. Sign online. No, no David, it's not signed. We've got to count every single person to know how many soldiers. So he sends them out. And then watch in verse number three. It says, but Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. Joab works wisely in this situation. He expresses his loyalty to David. He says, I will, I'll follow you. I'll follow your leadership. My Lord, my King, They're not all, are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does the Lord want us to do this? Why should I bring all this guilt on Israel? He knows... That David's heart is not pure. He knows that this is going to result in judgment from God. Because David is literally telling Joab to do something that is displeasing to the Lord. And the scripture says that Joab starts to kind of converse with David. In fact, it's interesting that for all of us who have influence, God will place people in our lives before we're about to do something stupid. It's like before you signed on that dotted line for that car loan, your spouse told you, honey, I, I, don't, I don't think you need this card it's not a wise decision before we do things that are dumb oftentimes god will put people in our lives that will speak into the decisions that we make and then we have to make a choice what we're going to do with that and david scripture says that david overruled joab's leadership or word it said the king's word verse number four however overruled joab he didn't listen to the wisdom so joab left and went throughout israel and then came back to jerusalem so now here is joab who's been been given a command by David to go out and count all of these troops. And the scripture says in verse number five, he reported the number of fighting men to David and all of Israel. There were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. I mean, could you imagine what that would feel like if you had a million soldiers at your fingertips? What you would do with them? That guy in middle school, I remember him. I remember what he said. I got a million soldiers now. Watch out, buddy. I mean, think about the confidence that David must have had. A million soldiers to do whatever he wishes. He could do with them. They were at his command like that. But I wonder. I wonder just wonder in his heart what he's about to do with all these soldiers. I mean, why in the world does he need to know at this point after he's defeated all of his enemies how many soldiers he has other than for his arrogance or to do something with his authority that ultimately would result in harm for all of the other people underneath his influence and his power and leadership so david counts the men and then the scripture says Joab did not include levi benjamin and the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him he understood the the significance of david's just his arrogance and his pride it was repulsive to him but then it says this command was also evil in the sight of god so he decided he would punish israel it was not just repulsive to joab but it was repulsive to god because david was abusing the authority that had been given to him in star trek the movie there's this one scene and in the middle of the uss enterprise is a chair and whoever sits in that chair commands the ship and there's one scene Where Captain Kirk is deciding what he's going to do. And somebody looks at him and says, you don't respect the chair. You don't respect the weight of the leadership or the influence or authority that's been given to you. And here in this passage, David is beginning to kind of take haphazardly the influence that God has given to him. And it was repulsive to God. It was repulsive to Joab. And so God said, then David said to God, I have sinned. Greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. He recognizes that it was dumb. And then the Lord says to Gad, David, Seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. It's like a parent. You've done this before, if you have kids, or your parents have done this to you, if you're a kid. They give you three options. What spank on the bottom? You know, hopefully, if you're a teenager, it's not a spank. But you know, when you're small, spank. You get, a, you can get three spanks. You can get three hours of time out, or you can get like three years of no TV. You know. Three options God gives to David. Choose one of them for me to carry out. So David says to him, three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies, with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with an angel of the Lord ravaging every single part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that God would punish one nation, an entire nation, for one man's choice? I mean, an entire group of people, over a million people, for one man that decides that he's going to count his troops. Have you ever seen somebody else who had a million soldiers who decided that they were going to do something arrogant and prideful? I mean, Hello, World War II, Hitler... And then six million Jews would lose their lives. See, David is on this train. He's got momentum, but the momentum is in the wrong direction now. And the pride and the arrogance from inside of his heart is leading him to get to this point where he might do something pretty foolish with these, these million soldiers that are under his command. And maybe, just maybe, in this instance, it's God's mercy... That is bringing punishment on the nation of Israel so that David doesn't do something even more harmful, worse for the nation of Israel. And God says, these are your choices in order that you would learn the lesson that I want you to learn right now. That you don't take leadership flippantly. You don't take authority lightly. I give you authority so that you can bless, so you can serve, so you can empower and do good for an entire nation. And then God carries out the consequences of this, the scripture says, so the Lord, after David would choose that he wants the hand of God, not the soldiers, not anybody else. God, you, you give it to me three days, I'll take it. So the Lord sent a plague, 70,000 men die, and God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But the angel was doing so, the Lord saw, and in, in, it was grieved. The Lord was grieved because of calamity and said, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arunah by the Jebus- Jebusite. David looks up. Sees the angel of the Lord. And down it says that David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. And he said, who am I? I ordered these fighting men to be counted. I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. But sheep, what what have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family. But don't let this plague remain on your people. And God relents. And in mercy pulls his hand off. And maybe in mercy has given this consequence. So David doesn't do something even more foolish with a million soldiers. And here... God gives this glaring lesson to every single one of us thousands of years later about the weight of influence. And the question then becomes, with every single one of us, God gives a level of influence, and the question is, what will you do? What will you do with the authority, the influence, and leadership that God has given to you? That's what I want to I focus in on. And I want you to think about your life from a different angle. See, many times we think of our lives, we're a follower, everybody else is a leader. No, no, God has given you authority. He's given you leadership. And the first point, if you're taking notes, I want to ask you to write this down, is every single life has a wake that follows it. Every life has a wake that follows it. In fact, some of you guys probably have been wakeboarding before. Now, this is a bad excuse for a, for a speedboat, but this is a pretty cool boat up here. And if you get behind any boat, there's a wake that follows that boat. And you could be... in a a lake or ocean and it could be calm seas but there can be a wake that follows behind that boat and a life is like this that every time you enter into a room and you leave that room there's a wake that follows and there are consequences of your choices there are consequences of our words our thoughts our interactions with people there is a wake that follows our lives I was at a funeral a couple weeks ago and there was a man who had passed away and his family was standing up and most of the things that they were saying about him were not good. One of his sons stood up and he said, I just wanted my dad my entire life to tell me that he loved me and that he was proud of me. That was the wake that that man left on his son. See, every single life has a wake that follows it. And the question is, what's the wake currently that's following your life? Like if you were to die today and we were have a funeral and... People are going to start standing up and talk about you. What would they say? What would be the things that they would say about your life and the influence that you had upon them? There is a wake that follows your life. And here's the second point. The more people you get in your boat, the bigger that wake becomes. The more people that are in your boat, the bigger the wake becomes. Some of you have been wakeboarding before. I erroneously said last week because I'm... You know, misinformed about wakeboarding. And I, uh, I've tried it like 10 times and I just cannot get up out of the water, man. My forearms, they get ripped. It's, it just doesn't work for me. I said last service that they go about 60 miles an hour. I was wrong. It's like 20 miles an hour that they go. I, I just don't get the idea of getting pulled by a rope behind a boat like that. But the more people you get in a boat, the bigger the wake becomes. Stacy and I went on a cruise for our 10 year anniversary. And behind this big cruise ship was this massive wake. I mean, it was probably five to seven feet tall because the ship was so big. The more authority, the more influence that God gives to you, the more weight you carry. In fact, there's this proverb. It says that the king's anger is like the roar of a lion... And his favor is like the dew on the grass. What that's saying is that the more authority that God gives to you, the bigger and the weightier your words become. And sometimes as a pastor, I forget this. You know, there was a time a a few weeks ago, I was up here working on my message on a Saturday morning. And there was this crew and they were going out on Saturday to serve and do landscaping at some, some place. And they asked me if I wanted to go landscape. And I said, you want to preach tomorrow? And then I walked away and I was like, that was stupid. Why in the world did I say that to people? I mean, I just devalued what they were doing. And the the more leadership you have, and that's why, like, most of the time I try, if there's some correction that needs to happen with something, the way we're doing things around here, I, like, try to work through our staff. Because if I go and just talk to volunteers, I'm like, change this. And then they're, like, in counseling for the next week. I mean, it's, it's really bad. But the more leadership you have... The bigger your wake becomes, the more people in your boat. And you and I have to be aware of this. It's not just flippant decisions. It's not just, should I stay after work for an extra hour? No, you have a family now. It's not just, should I hang out at the bar when I'm away on business? No, you're married. You made a covenant relationship with that woman. It's not just you make a decision and you do whatever the heck you feel like doing. Your boat has some people in it. And based upon the size of your boat and the people that are in your boat, you make wakes or waves that follow your life. The more people you have in your boat, the bigger your wake becomes. And then lastly, but certainly not least in relationship to your wake, your wake is determined by how you handle relationships and responsibilities. And this comes from Henry Cloud's book called Integrity. And he says that all of our lives following behind our life is this wake and it's defined by our relationships and our responsibilities. And if you want to know if your life is bearing fruit, if your life is building people up or destroying people, look at your relationships and how you handle responsibilities. That's how your wake is defined. It simply is boiled down to those two categories. And the question I want to ask you is, what's your wake? What is the wake that is currently following your life? And I want us to do some business together today. I want us to think about our lives through an angle of six questions that I want to give to you, six categories for you to evaluate, and then to make some mid-course corrections or some 180-degree turns around these categories to ask the question, what kind of wake am I bringing with my life? So if you have a pen and some notes, let's walk through these six categories. And the first one is this, your words. What kind of words are you bringing to your relationships and your responsibilities? Proverbs 19, 21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. And you, with the same tongue, can speak life to the people around you, or you can speak death to the people around you. If you were to go over the last week and just, just get like, if we could just, Get all your words and put them up on screen over the last week, what we see on screen. Most of us would say, I'd rather keep that somewhere other than the screen in front of everybody at South Bay Church. What are your words bringing? When you come into a situation, do you bring life? How about gossip? Some of you guys at school, you know, there's that girl and she, you know, she wears that short mini skirt, and she, she's got, you know, that boyfriend that's a jock and they're losers and you don't like them and really it's just because you're jealous. So now you're just going to gossip, but you're not just going to gossip to your girlfriend. You're going to gossip on Facebook, right? Your words, what are your words bringing when you come to a situation? How about dads? When you think about your words that you speak to your children, are you speaking life? Do you tell your kids you love them? Do you tell your kids you're proud of them? Or are you speaking death? Your place of work, at school, at home. What's happening with your words? How are you infusing relationships and responsibility? And part of the transformation with the wake is us realizing the weight of our words. We're going to have some fun and we're going to get really personal here. So get your big boy pants on. Next one is this. It's M-I-R. And this stands for your most important relationships. I heard a story one time this couple they were in for marriage counseling and they were trying to get some of the problems worked out and uh, the husband was trying to explain how he felt to his wife and he said you know you just treat me so bad in fact you treat everybody else better than you treat me I just want you to treat me as good as you treat our neighbors that's all I'm asking of you if you'll just treat me that good I think we could probably work this thing out and oftentimes we get this mixed up don't we Like, we treat the people that we don't know great, and then it comes to spouse or kids or family members or the people that we spend the most amount of time with. And the closer you get to us, the more, you know, the more demonic we become oftentimes, the more of a monster we become. And we can, like, ride to church and be saying, you know, cuss words at our kids, and, you know, I can't believe you didn't get ready on time, and we're going to miss the first three songs of the incredible worship at South Bay, and then and you're like angry with your spouse or angry with your friends on the way to church, and then you get here and you're like, hi, so good to see you. <laughs> see, oftentimes our most important relationships go neglected. Here's what I want from my life. I want the people who know me the best to respect me the most. I mean, think about it like this. Who's it worse for me to tick off? You or my wife, Stacy? It's worse for me to tick her off. I climb into bed with her at night. And it's different when you look at your life, oftentimes we give greater value to the people who are furthest from us rather than the people that are closest to us. What do the people that are closest to you think about their value in your eyes? What are you doing currently to invest in your most important relationships? Maybe you need to re- redefine what your most important relationships are. Sometimes it's good to force rank your relationships. It's good to say, hey, God's the most important Second, if you're married, it's your spouse. After that, your kids, and then you go on down. And if i got to disappoint somebody, it's not going to be my wife and my kids. If i got to disappoint somebody, it's not, it's not going to be the people that are most important to me. Your most important relationships are the wake that most closely follows your life. And when, when it's all over... And people are standing up at your funeral. It's, it's not that guy that you saw at the copy machine yesterday at work or Friday at work. It's, it's the people that are closest to you that are most influenced and impacted. The ripple effect either hurts them or builds them up more than anybody else. The most important relationships in your life. We could probably do an entire message on each of these categories. Next one. Is this your decisions? Question is, how well do your decisions reflect your top values? You know, sometimes we say we value generosity, but then we make decisions that tie our hands so that we can't be generous. Sometimes we say that we value hard work, but we cut corners when we're at work. Sometimes we say that we value authority, but we don't follow the leadership of the people that God has placed over us. How well do your decisions reflect what you say is most important? Spouses, Children, friends. You know, you say your family, your extended family is important, but do your decisions reflect those values that are most important to us? And oftentimes we can forget the weight of our decisions. David wants to be a man after God's own heart. He wants to honor God. He wants to please him, but his decision to count the troops flippantly is like, I- I'm going to do whatever I want to do, whatever the heck I want to do as the leader. I'm going to do it, and it doesn't matter how important God thinks he is, I'm the man, I'm in charge, I got the crown on my head. Your decisions reflect your values and a part of leadership and a part of influence and a part of the wake is giving greater weight to those decisions. It's getting counsel, it's praying It's reading the scripture. It's understanding God's heart so that when I make decisions, both small and big, my decisions honor the Lord and they reflect the values that are true to the heart of God. How well are your decisions reflecting your and God's top values? This is fun, isn't it? I hear a little bit of quietness in this place today because it's personal and we don't want to think about these things. And we want to act like it's all going to work out and it's all going to be okay. But I'm telling you out of love, you are one day going to be done with this life. And one day that casket's going to be closed And there's going to be a mark that your life left and you can make a decision today whether or not you will leave the kind of mark and influence with your life that honors God, that builds up others and uses every bit of influence that God has given to you for the furthering of his kingdom and for the good of the people around you. So that's why this is so incredibly important. And the next category is our commitments. This last week I was at a conference. I saw a pastor there who was a mentor of mine about six years ago. And this mentor of mine, he was supposed to help South Bay get started. In fact, he made a commitment. He was going to give $10,000 five years ago to our brand new church when we were started. And he had me do all these applications and go through these, these hoops I had to jump through. And it was worth it. I was like, okay, it's worth $10,000 to do these things. I'll do them. I'll go to these events. I'll fill out these applications. I'll do what you want. And then when it came time to give the money to our church to help us get started, the guy didn't keep his word. And he failed. I, I had relied upon him. You know the Proverbs say? It's interesting, the Proverbs say that relying on an undependable person is like, is like having a foot that is lame. It's like having a tooth that doesn't work. You go to chew on the steak and the tooth is like, it just crumbles under the pressure. And some of us are like that. We're not faithful with the commitments that we made. I did a wedding yesterday. And you know those vows that you say, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I will love you as long as I live. And how many of us have spoken those words and those commitments that we've made couldn't be further from our hearts in this moment? In a fresh way yesterday, as I was marrying that couple, I was like, man, God, I I want this to be true of me in my marriage. I want this to be my heart. And that man, when I saw him this week, that man that made that commitment who didn't keep it, that man is marred, in my eyes, by his inability to fulfill what he said he would do. See, some of us, we're people pleasers, and we want to rope people in with our words, right? And we, we want people to like us, so we say we'll do things, but then when it comes to fulfilling those commitments, we don't fulfill them. So we become penultimate over-promisers and under-deliverers, and then that's the image of the people in our lives, and oftentimes the most important relationships— I'm going to be home by this time. I'm going, to, I'm going to hang out with you on Saturday and take you out to get bagels. I'm going to do this with you. But then when it comes time to fulfilling that commitment, we don't fulfill the commitments that we've made with our lips. And my question is, how faithful are you? When you look back over the course of your life, over the last month, the last year, are you fulfilling the commitments that you've made? How about you spouses in the room? Can we, can we lock eyes for just a minute? Can I see your faces, those of you who are married? And you said you'd cherish her and you said you'd be loyal to him. Are you? Are you loyal to that commitment? The scripture says there's one passage that says a person of integrity keeps their commitment even when it causes them pain and it hurts them. A commitment is not something you flippantly do and say, I'll do this, and then if it's inconvenient, I don't do it. No, over my dead body, if I gave my word, it's time for me to fulfill. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and there is a wake that follows so many of our lives. of commitments are really, really important. Next is our habits, and this one we could spend a lot of time, but here's a question. What do your habits say you value? the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. Maybe some of those addictions that we'd like to say that are not there, maybe it's an alcohol addiction and it started off and it was just a couple nights a week and you were trying to relax and you were stressed out and there's nothing wrong with that, but now it's become an addiction and that thing controls your life or maybe it's a sex addiction and that habit says that you value things other than what you really want to be expressed through your life. And my question is, how well do our habits reflect what we say is most important? Our time, our energy, our passion that we invest in thing, things. How well do your habits express the top values in your life? And then, lastly, and certainly not least, I'm going to spread these out so that you guys can see them also clearly just to maximize the conviction that we're all feeling right now. <laughs> so we feel extra levels of weight around this. Can't see this one here. You can just. Make believe that you can. And then lastly, but certainly not least, is passion. And can I speak to those of you who follow Jesus and you say that your life is His? I think there's this tendency, and for me, I've experienced it, where we start off, and we have a lot of people who are new to faith at South Bay, and we start off, and we're passionate, and we're so full-on committed to Him. But if we're really honest with ourselves over the course of our lives, that passion can begin to wane. And one of the temptations for me is to become a full-time pastor, but a part-time follower of Jesus. And recently, God has just been putting weight on my heart. The greatest wake that you will leave in the lives of those around you is a passion and a love for God that consumes every fiber of your being. That you would love Him more than you love anything else. Listen to this. Write this down. The greatest gift that you could ever give to the world is your intimacy with God. The greatest gift that you could ever give to the world. One of my mentors said that. The greatest gift you could ever give to the world, the greatest wake that you could leave with your life is a passion for God. And that's what I want. I want when people get close to me to see, man, this guy, he is so in love with this man, Jesus. With this man, Jesus. I understand it. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense. He's a little weird sometimes. But, man, there is no questioning that at the center of his life is a love for God. I want my kids to not have to leap over my life to love God. I want my little boys every day to see a dad that's sitting on the couch with the word of God open, with his heart molded and shaped by God. And that's where real influence happens in a way that honors God, is when at the core of our life is this passion for God. And I just want to ask you, how's that passion? I mean, are are you just doing things out of routine? You're just going to church, you're just tithing, you're going to a life, you're just doing it out of routine and the love for God it's become religion for you instead of relationship with you. There's a passage in Revelation where Jesus is speaking to the church and he says, you lost that first love. Have you lost your first love? Some of you today, that's what God want, wanted you to hear. That you are here to get that first love back. You are here today in church to reorient your life so that God would become the focal point of your life. And then out of that would become this incredible influence that would go into your every relationship, every responsibility. And when you get to the end, when we look back at our lives, the thing that will matter the most is if that was the mark of your life there will be this ripple effect. And when people cry at your funeral, they won't be crying out of the brokenness that you've caused for their life. They'll be missing you and they will be crying tears of joy knowing that your life was influential in the lives of literally hundreds, if not thousands of people that if you and I will harness and we will realize the authority and the leadership and the influence that God has given to our lives, we can become a force for good. And the scripture says in Second Chronicles 16:9 that the eyes of God Range throughout the entire earth, that God is looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to Him, that He can come alongside of them and strengthen them in order to fulfill the purpose that He has for their lives. And I love at the end of Star Trek, when Captain Kirk goes into this room and the USS Starship is heading towards planet Earth, about to destroy literally hundreds of lives, and Captain Kirk, after blowing it multiple times before, goes into this room and he's got to reorient some component of the ship and some engineer will tell me exactly what was happening. I just know that he was in there and if he didn't do the thing he was about to do, the entire ship would explode and people would die and he dies and lays down his life so that everybody under his command can be saved and can go away from this harmful situation with life. And many of us have this question of why would God choose to punish an entire nation of people because of one man's choice? But the beauty and the central theme of all of the Bible is not just that God would punish one group of people or an entire nation because of one man's choice, but it's that when Jesus would come, God would choose to punish one man for the sin and the choices of every man, woman, child, rich, poor, young and old, every nation, tribe and tongue, that God would lay the sins of every person on one man And the greatest man who ever lived, God himself, would give of his life and sacrifice so that you and I could experience life and ultimately displaying what it means to really use influence and leadership for the good of others. The ultimate example of laying down one's life so that people can experience hope and relationship with God. And today, God God wants to communicate fresh vision to you for your life. God wants to communicate to you... You can't earn salvation, you can't earn relationship with him, it's not religion, it's not trying harder. These questions aren't to make you feel guilty and bad about yourself, and these questions definitely aren't so you can make somebody else feel guilty and bad about themselves. And, hey, did you see what he said about commitments and habits and all those things? You're not doing those. No, this is an honest assessment of your life to say, it's going to be over one day. It really is. And the question is, what will you have done with what God placed in your hands? And it all begins with a relationship with God. And if you've never opened up your heart to him, you can do that today. And just say, God, I want to follow you. I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross and you rose from the dead. And as you place your faith in him and you choose to follow him, relationship between you and God can begin, not on religion, but on faith and God's grace given to you. Others of you today, this is the day for you to make a fresh commitment to God and to use the influence that he's given to you. So I'd like to invite you just to close your eyes and pray with me for a moment. And I want you today to think about these questions that we've discussed and to use this week as an opportunity to go back and to evaluate your life and the relationships and responsibilities God has given to you to maximize the influence for the good of others by going through these questions, maybe grabbing a journal and writing down your answers Monday, Tuesday of this week to say, God, in a fresh way, I want to use my influence to benefit and bless others. God, thank you today. You're a good God. You're a God of love. You're a God of mercy. Thank you for the example and the story of David that literally through that one story, you can teach us all a lesson that could spare so many other people from harm. And even your mercy in that situation to prevent David from doing something even more foolish that would harm an entire nation. Thank you that you're merciful and thank you that you're giving us a second chance. And even though maybe that scene of our life in the past is not what we want it to be or the place that we are today is not where we desire that you can give us new hope new vision and that with your help we can reorient the wake of our lives to live a life that influences others for their good and for your kingdom's purposes we love you today and we want to take seriously the weight of leadership and the weight of authority that you've given